I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is author, uh, doctor, um, MD, Linda Olson. Uh, she's also a motivational speaker, and her new book is Gone, a memoir of love, body, and taking back my life. Uh, at age 29, Linda Olson, MD, was vacationing with her husband in Germany when their van was hit by a train, shattering their lives as well as her body. I didn't marry your arm or your legs. If you can do it, I can do it, was the first thing her husband said to her in the hospital after she woke up as a triple amputee. For 35 years, Linda and Dave kept the truth of what happened from their family. What at first appeared to be a tragedy became a love story and a life extraordinarily well-lived, giving birth to two children, pursuing her career as a professor emeritus of radiology at UC San Diego, along with adventurous outdoor travel across the globe in canoes, kayaks, skis, and backpacks. This is a part medical survivor memoir, part marriage guide, and and parenting confessional, and part travel blog. Uh, Linda asked readers to find not only courage, but also laughter in the unexpected challenges we all face. Um, welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Linda. Thank you. It's very much my pleasure to be invited. Well, that's quite a story. Um, and um, I have to say, I mean, when I think about it, uh, a scary story for most of us. And how did you do it? How have you done it? You're now, what, 60, uh, se- not 60, 70? Oh, 71? I'll be 71 next week. This is a, that's the good part. <laughs> that's the great part. That Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess the thing that and I, you know, I read the book. It is a page turner, I have to say. Um one of the things you talked about after this accident, you wake up and you have both your legs are missing above the knee amputee. Um, one arm is missing that you said the only thing that you felt like that you had or had left, maybe not the only thing you had left was your attitude. You had control over your attitude. Maybe we should start with that. Oh boy. You know that <laughs> it was, a, it was a, um, easy thing to do because I was awake during the accident. I never lost consciousness. So when the train came to a stop and they started picking up body parts, I could see it. And I realized that there was nothing you could do about reconnecting those things. And it was never anything like, oh, I wonder if it's real or not. It was real. And when I woke up in the hospital after surgery, I just looked down and I kept thinking, there's nothing there. What am I going to do? And it was all in my head. And I just kept thinking, it's, this is going to be something that I have to take control of. And I realized probably within that first day that I had a choice to make. And the choice, and I think all of us have this choice in life, is do we want to be happy or not? And I guess it's, you don't really say the question, do you want to be happy or do you want to be unhappy? We just say, do you want to be happy or not? And I really, really wanted to be happy, and I wanted the people around me to be happy. I wanted to hear them laugh, and I wanted to laugh with them, and that gave me my first job. There was nothing else I could do because I was pretty much, you know, wrapped up in bandages, and I actually uh, broke my back at the same time. So that was about all there was to do, was to kind of look at people and get them to laugh with me, which we did. But, Linda, I'm, I'm thinking about, and I mean, you talk about this in the book, too, like PTSD, and I know you spoke to a psychiatrist, both you and your husband, um, and um, he, he was 
given your personality and all of um, you know what you'd been through, was very positive about your recovery. Um, and um, I always think about you know I worked in a rehab hospital for many many years, and um, I'm thinking about like the grieving process. Did 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 I mean you're talking about wanting to be happy? And obviously having the support of your husband and family, but what about that grieving, grieving over your body parts and that, you know, that picture that you have in the book, I have to say the one right after the accident where you're doing, I think you're doing an exercise with, with your, with your, it's your left arm, right? My left arm. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you look very strong. You look very powerful, even though you're, you know, you're sitting there and you can see that you're, you know, you have an above tube above the knee amputations. And that was I don't know. There's something about that photo that's very encouraging. I don't know. I've asked you three questions maybe in one, but... Okay, well, let me, uh, let me go back to the one I can yeah. remember first. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. PTSD, yeah. Um, you know, back then, they had different terms for PTSD, and I, you, you can speak to that. And I think the code, the psychi- psychiatric code book or whatever, was still being changed. I think it changed a couple times. Um, you know, the PTSD... Um, I don't know a lot about it. I've learned a tiny bit that you maybe could tell me about, and that is that there's beginning to be some theories that there's genetic predispositions or predispositions to not getting it. And if that's true, I would guess that I may be one of those people who is more predisposed not to get it. But also, I think the fact that I could see, I mean, there was never any doubt that this had not happened. And it was constant. In fact, that's how the name of the book came about when my publisher read the book through. It didn't have this title. And she said she read the first chapter twice, and she said what she came away with was, I just kept looking down and everything was gone. And it took, I'm not kidding, it's probably taken, took years, I'm sure, because I would get up in the morning and looked down and everything was gone, and I would go to sleep at night and dream as a able-bodied person. I did that for years. I would guess that probably for the first 10 years, I never dreamt as a disabled person. All of my nighttime dreams were everything intact. And here I am now, what, 41 years later, and I would guess that now my dreams are majority are probably without legs, but I still have some. So I think there's something protective in your mind that lets you kind of take a rest from the missing parts, but I'm not sure what the psychology is of that. But there's one other part to this that I found interesting, and that is post-amputation, the feeling or sensation that your extremities are still there which we call them phantom, you know, phantom feelings. And from day one, when I woke up, I felt like my, if I was lying in bed, it felt like my feet were through holes in the bed and my knees were bent. It was like I was sitting and I could feel my arm and it was in a bent position and my hand was kind of curled, you know, like your hand was like a fist. And to this day, I mean, while I'm sitting here right now, I don't have my legs on right now, I feel like there's a very slight electrical current running through my legs and my feet and my hand, and that has been there from day one. So when you ask me about loss, um, I can look and see they're gone, 
but the feeling has never disappeared. It's not like I don't have any feeling. I, they're shortened, but I still feel like they're there. So yeah. there must be something in your brain <clears throat> that kind of is protective, and I don't know. I don't know if there's any truth to this, but that's my experience. Okay, so that was question yeah. one. <laughs> you know, what were the other questions? <laughs> well, I, I think you've sort of answered, I mean, you have answered that protective, what you're saying. There's something in your brain that protects you. Hey, uh, you know, you look down and your limbs are gone, but they're not really gone. They're gone, but they are still there, what you're saying, and you <laughs> yeah, still have those yeah. sensations. And maybe it brings me to the prosthetic um, devices, because I know those have changed over the years. Um and have gotten very sophisticated and complicated, and I mean, in a good way. And I think when you mentioned in the book, when you started to, when you first had put on your legs, your prosthetic legs, that it ta- it took over 200% more energy to walk with those legs than it does for just if you have your, reg- you, know, you know, your own legs, your normal. Um, has that changed with these new prosthetic devices? And do you have them or do you use them? I mean, the cost is uh, very... Yeah, good question. Because I the legs that I first had made, they call them hydraulic knees, and they do take a lot of energy. Um, luckily, I was young and I was very athletic and strong, and I was able to learn how to walk with a cane relatively quickly you know, within just a few months. Um, I actually fell and broke my hip uh, about. 10 years ago now, I think. And when I was recovering from the surgery, there was enough change in the soft tissues of my legs that my prosthetist needed to make a new set of sockets. And he said, you know, let's give it a try with the new microprocessor knees, which are called C legs, or they're the ones that have the computers and battery operated in them. And I said, sure, this will be a great idea. You know, I'd love to love to walk better, and they were very intriguing because there's a lot of things that they will do. They will let you sit down a little bit more gracefully. They will let you climb stairs uh, to some degree, and I tried them. I kept them for about two months, and at the time, I was, you know, I was working full-time, so when I went back to work, I didn't really have the time to go to physical therapy and learn to use them like I had done originally. And I turned them back in because they were they were more problematic than I would have liked. First of all, you have to keep charging them routinely, and we travel a lot. I think that was the year that we were going to go on a rafting trip down the Grand Canyon for eight days down the Colorado River. And I thought, you know, what do you do with your legs? You leave them in the hot car in Las Vegas and they <laughs> oil up or something? I don't yeah. know. So it, for me, they were not the answer. Um, you know, I had been walking with old, the old-fashioned type of leg for over 30 years, and I was a very good walker. And what I've discovered since then is I think, in particular, young, um, athletic, uh, especially, you know, people that come back from war injuries, war, I, think yeah. they probably, I think they probably benefit from them better than I would because I had such a good track record walking and didn't take the time to learn how to redo things. So so I think you'll find that there are a lot of people that still use knees like I do. They're the old-fashioned, you pick your leg up and you kick it and heel strike down, uh, then use the other. And they happen to be very expensive also. So, yeah. um, but I, I, everybody, I, I actually went online and looked that up. And I think it's a, correct me 
I, maybe I thought it said fifty to seventy-five thousand dollars. These they can cost exactly. That's exactly yeah. right. They are yeah, big big difference. So I think they are a wonderful invention, but I think they're um, probably not what most people use. So, but I did now, try. What about your arm? Because uh, you, you decided not to get a, a prosthetic arm. Yes, to my husband's dismay, <laughs> I felt like at the very beginning, I, I didn't want to sit in a wheelchair the rest of my life. If there was any way of standing up and looking people in the eye again, I was going to do that. So I put all my energy there. And while I was doing that, I learned to do everything with my left hand. And what you quickly discover is that your second hand is used for holding things. And so if I was writing, I would learn to pick up a coffee mug or something and put it on a piece of paper to hold it in place while I wrote. Um, and pretty much everything else, I would lean, learn to lean over with my shoulder if nothing else was around and hold things. Or I would put things between my two legs and hold them while I, you know, like I stir in a bowl or if I take a lid off of something. Plus, because my amputation on my right arm, it's right at the shoulder. I have my shoulder is intact, but it's just the very top of the humerus that is where it's cut off. So to put a prosthetic arm on, at least at at that time, and it may be the same now, it would have had to be strapped across my upper chest. And (laughs) I had a little bit of female vanity, and that was about the only part of me that was left was from my waist up. Well, let me see, from my boobs up, somewhere like that. And I figured if I had to put all these straps on every day, I couldn't wear, you know, low-cut dresses, and it would be hot. And I just didn't do it. And if you look at the literature, I think you'll find that it's not uncommon for single arm or hand or partial arm amputees not to use devices because um, they figure out how to do without. So Yeah, and because of the reasons that you just told us about, <clears throat> I want to get into some of the family uh, dynamics uh, because, well, you talk about your sexuality. That was still there. Um, you talk about uh, pregnant, two kids, going through a pregnancy, birth, uh, being, doing your residency, residency as a physician. All of these things that I think most people find difficult at best. So um, how'd you do it? Let's talk about because as a mother and a grandmother, which I know you are, uh, what about the pregnancy? How did you do that? I mean, I know you describe it in the book, but um, just... Well, first in, of all, I wasn't yeah. planning on that, but I guess my yeah. husband was. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he, in fact, I, early in the book, I talk about uh, that first week and kind of waking up one day and thinking, I need to have a hysterectomy because... I don't, you're going to laugh at this, I don't want to have to be using Tampax the rest of my life with one hand, which was a stupid decision to even be considering. And my husband just looked at me and says, don't I have any say in this? And I thought, I guess you probably do. (laughs) So that didn't happen. But um, I got pregnant nine months after the accident while we were actually back in Europe visiting his parents. Um, We'd gone back nine months later to finish our trip. And... What we, what my biggest concern was, having children. Um, what would they think about growing up with a disabled mom and somebody who looked funny and who walked funny and who couldn't do very many things? 
course, that was the way I saw it at that point. And Dave kind of set me down one day and said, you know, teenagers are going to always think that their parents are dinosaurs. And they always come around and they'll do the same thing with us. And I thought, okay, if you think so, we'll give it a try. (laughs) But what really happened, I think, is I started my slow weight gain of being pregnant was it just gave me more strength because I kept walking and the added weight made me stronger. And, again, it goes back to that mental attitude. It gave me, it was a big distraction. I realized quickly that I was going to have to learn how to do things for somebody else, which kept me from, I I think maybe a little bit from becoming morose, which I don't think I would have been, but perhaps because everything that I couldn't do that had been taken away from me, I realized I was going to need to learn how to replace it or how to do it differently or get somebody to help me. So it was, you know, the nine months of pregnancy was um, a preparation time, which is probably what pregnancy is for everybody, and you start figuring out how you're going to live your life. Um, For me, I had gone back to finish my residency in radiology in Los Angeles, and um, it had been a big, big goal of mine to be able to go back and live independently. So it all came together well. I was finishing my residency, studying for my oral boards, and it kept me from... I didn't have any time to feel sorry for myself because I was busy, more than busy, <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> accomplishing, I would say. And I, I was also thinking as you're describing your pregnancy, one of the things about being pregnant is your body is functioning normally, you know, it's everything, you know, and you had not, a nine-month pregnancy. Um, it, it, that's also kind of, it would seem to me, a very positive thing in terms of, of just your own, as you say, uh, very motivating and, and feeling good about yourself. Um just given that just and you had a good pregnancy so that you know a I had positive an easy pregnancy yeah. and it yeah. yeah and that I think was a blessing also and I was able to work until I think I went home I I finally reached the point where I was just I was ready and Dave came up to Los Angeles and got me one night and I think Tiffany was born about a week after that so and the labor and delivery was was entertaining, to say the least, because nobody was quite sure how this was going to work. Like I said in the book, no, nobody wrote a book about how you deliver a triple amputee, but <laughs> what we discovered was I had to leave my legs on, because if you think about the pushing that you need to do when you're delivering, that's why they have stirrups, um, yep. although I guess in many countries there's different ways of doing this, but you've got to be able to squat or push and you do that through your knees. Well, if you don't have your legs on, or I don't have them on, there was nothing to push against. So so um, we d- decided to leave them on, and my the OBGYN doc, who was, this was at the Navy, so he was the chief resident, and he took one leg and Dave took the other, and they put them over their shoulder. And when I had to push, they would just lean toward me. Each of them had a leg over their, you know, their outer shoulder, and I would kind of lift up and push against them with my legs on so that's how we made the baby come out (laughs) it worked and then we did it it worked I was gonna say it did work (laughs) I want to add we don't have a lot of time left so I know you talk a lot about 
I mean, you've traveled all over the world, um, and you you're and you call it adventurous, but you're a risk. It seems to me you're a risk taker. I mean, calculated risks, but a risk taker. Like you know, you're canoeing and kayaking and hiking, and again, under the I mean, I under the best of circumstances can be pretty scary. Some of the things that you've done, like you were you know kayaking and and canoeing, um, so. Talk to us about that. I mean, I know you do that. You've done that. That's what your with your kids, your family, your husband, friends. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting. I've never thought of it as being a risk taker. <laughs> interesting way to ask me about it. Um, I'll think about that later today. Okay. I think, again, it was, I had grown up hiking and being an outdoors person. I'd been up Mount Whitney a couple times. I'd been up Half Dome a couple times in Yosemite and down the Grand Canyon. So it was one of the, again, one of those things that was way out there that said if we're going to have a family and we want to be normal, I would love my children to do that. So as much as anything, it was just let's get out there. And I think what, I'm a very trusting person. And we did this in particular the first time we went out to Yellowstone and did the first canoe trip of four days. I just convinced myself that these people would take good care of me. And if I just went along, I would have a good time, and we all had a good time. So I think as much of it being a risk-taking, and there are <laughs> there are some trips that we've taken down in South America, down the Fudalafu River and places like that, where, yes, it was, it was scary. But, um, again, I just kept thinking, if something happens, somebody will help me, or, you know, they'll, we'll get out of it. Um, the, the Grand Canyon, the Class 5 rapids when you're going down those that river on those rafts, um, you know, they would let me ride in the front until we got to the Class 5, and then I would sit back kind of in a corner where I was pretty safe. So I think we would take a fair amount of risk, the way you asked me about it, but we always kind of knew that there was, at some point, I shouldn't be doing things, and that's where I kind of would step back. So, yeah, but it was fun. You are well. You're an independent person, but slash um, a trusting person. That whole you just brought that up. I think you know being able to trust other people, and I you know, and I would assume that that comes up a lot. Well, say when your kids were younger, you have to have people help you take care of the children, and there has to be a trust. So that balance, it seems to me, is what you've been able that you've achieved, or you were that kind of person to begin with over the years. Um, we only have a couple minutes left, so I mean, I could go on and on. I have lots more questions, but I recommend people read the book. I mean, it's um, Gone, a memoir of love, body, and taking back my life. Um, and it's it's not it's about you, and it's also about family, and it's uh, it has this just a lot of um, emotional things packed into that one little book. Uh, Dr. Linda Olson. So a website or websites we can go to for more information? Sure. It's very easy. It's just my name, no spaces, Linda K. Olson, L-I-N-D-A-K-O-L-S-O-N.com. And you can see lots of pictures, uh, so you can see what it looks like. There's some videos, um, and on the very front page, it tells you how you can find a copy of my book. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It's great talking to you. So welcome. Thank you for inviting me. 
I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm.